Hi, this is Mike Wang. I want to take the opportunity to tell you about the AANS meeting that's coming up in Philadelphia. I'm super excited to share with you the brand new venue, and I've been honored to be chosen by Reg Haid as a scientific program chair for our meeting this year in 2022. Based on responses to surveys with our membership over the last several years, we've decided to change completely the meeting format. Now, it just so happens that it coincided with the ending of the COVID pandemic, but we have shifted the entire meeting to the weekend. What that means is instead of the typical meeting format where you'd come in on Saturday and Sunday for practical courses with an opening reception on Sunday night, then the meeting on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which was a very long meeting, if you will. We recognize that surgeons are getting busier and busier and travel budgets are getting tighter and tighter. So this meeting format will start on Friday and expand through Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday. There are obviously some offerings on Thursday like the Haros and Sontag Symposia, which are not to be missed. But the mainline elements of the meeting when you register are Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And what we've done to make this more efficient for you is we've essentially tailored the meeting so if you're more of a generalist, more of that content's on the front end of the meeting on Friday and Saturday. And more of the concentrated subspecialty content is on Sunday and Monday. So let me walk you through it. For example, on Friday, we have a number of ticketed events like practical courses. There's the International Symposium and there's the APP content. In other words, if you're a nurse practitioner or PA, you're going to find a little bit more value on that Friday and maybe Saturday. We've eliminated one whole day of plenary session. This, again, is in response to our membership. So Saturday and Sunday are the plenary days. What that means is the big hall is open on Saturday and Sunday morning to hear our esteemed speakers in one large room and one large gathering. The afternoons of Saturday and Sunday will be focused on the sections. So in other words, we'll break out into our rooms to do abstracts and more concentrated subspecialty content with the sections, for example, spine, functional, tumor, vascular. Then on Monday, we've started a brand new thing called Communities, and this is crafted a special way. We've made it so that it ends a little bit earlier at 4, 4.30, so most people can get home that evening on Monday night so they don't miss Tuesday. And the Communities are 14 rooms that are designed to be smaller, more cozy, more conversation, more debate, and we want industry in the room. It is CME offered, but the industry is welcome to be there as well to listen to what thought leaders in the different fields can say about what they're doing, the cutting edge issues, the existential crises, right? What is really on the minds of the super subspecialist? And these community offerings are part of your regular registration. So I know it's a little confusing, but when you register for the meeting, it seems like you have to check a community, check a box, and that usually implies you have an additional charge, and that is not the case at all here. Basically, the 14 communities will be run concurrently, and you're welcome to walk from room to room. If, for example, you want to check out motion preservation in spine and then go over and see cervical thoracic deformity, then you can do that. And it's going to be very interactive. Feel free to, to engage, raise your hand, get up to the microphone and speak because we want to hear from neurosurgeons everywhere. Lunch on Monday will be offered at the famous Reading Terminal. You'll be given lunch tickets from our industry representatives and you'll be able to get a quick lunch and grab an amazing Philly cheesesteak or some ramen noodles and then come back to the meeting. So again, I want to welcome you to Philadelphia in 2022. I hope you can make it. We're all eager to see each other in person again. We haven't had such a large meeting since the beginning of the pandemic. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Uh, really excited today to be joined by another repeat guest, which is not the only cause for celebration. Uh, today, in fact, I'm sitting down in person with my brother. Who... How you doing, JP? Great to be back. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Um, longtime listeners of the show may recall my brother was on uh, last year during our Medicine and the Law series talking about patents, trademarks, intellectual property, which somewhat overlaps with his work as an attorney. Um, recently, my brother moved from New York back to Florida, our home state, and that's what we wanted to talk about today was kind of the process of uprooting, of changing where you're working, the setting where you're working um, in a professional environment when you're already a little bit down the road of your career. Um, but Michael, for those of you who obviously don't, uh, don't know you as well as I do, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks very much. Uh, Michael Colson, as my brother just said, moved back to Florida from New York just over a year ago. I am now in Tampa on Florida's West Coast, practicing at the law firm Adams & Reese, doing pretty much the same thing I did in New York, commercial litigation, business disputes, and intellectual property. Good. So, Mike, mostly what I want to talk today about is kind of the process of the move, the process of maybe not restarting, but um, reigniting your career in another setting and what it's like seeking out new employment um, and establishing yourself as a professional who needs referrals, who needs clients, who needs to network both with the community and potential customers and clients, but also with the other professionals in your environment. But maybe just briefly to set the stage, can you talk about the time when you were deciding to make the move and what pros and cons you weighed? Sure. Um, well, I think the most important thing is uh, twofold, actually. It's planning and it's luck. And I think both of those are very important for something like this. It's very difficult. It can be a little unnerving to think uh, to do something like that at you know this stage of your career um, when you're already established somewhere and essentially hitting the reset and having to start over. Um, for me, it was something that my wife and I had talked about um, for a while in New York in the midst of the pandemic, what we were going to do, perhaps moving back to Florida. And I had sought out, after deciding on the geography of uh, where in Florida we wanted to be, I had started seeking out the firms that I wanted to join and started doing remote interviews. There was one in particular that I had interviewed with probably five phases or so, got to the end of the process, and unfortunately, um, their local office could not get the thumbs up from headquarters to hire me. Again, in the midst of the pandemic, the economy at that time. Um, so that was, that was difficult. But from that contact, I randomly, one Friday night, got a call from um, someone who said, hi, Michael, I don't know you, but I heard about you from my friend um, at the firm that I've been interviewing with, and we're looking for somebody, and we'd love to you know, meet you when you're gonna be in town. Yeah, there's the luck, huh? It's a lot of luck. It's timing, it's good luck, and that's how you know I got here, and um, yeah, it, there was a lot of groundwork, but also a lot of uh, good fortune. Yeah, you know, we talked, uh, listeners may remember, we talked with Dan Shuba last year when he changed inst institutions. He moved from Hopkins to head 
another neurosurgery department. And one of the first and most significant points he made was thinking about his family for the move as well. Um, I know that your wife, Colby, is also a professional. She's a professor of criminology. And so trying to make a move like that from a major city like New York, where there's lots of work for a lawyer, lots of work for an academic at the various universities there, um, you know, targeting a location where both of you can find not just employment, but satisfying employment must have been a huge piece of the decision that I want to, I definitely want to get to in this conversation. Um, but first, I, I think one of the things I'm genuinely most curious about for myself, as, as well as what might be interesting to our listeners, is thinking about this move as an attorney. You know, one, one of the parallels between medicine and law that we spoke about last year is that there is kind of this state-by-state state difference in practice. And I think that's even more pronounced for a lawyer because states actually have different laws and different rules that you have to play by that you need to know and you have to be barred and certified to practice law in a different state. Whereas on the physician side of things, generally medicine is medicine, right? Biology is biology, surgery is surgery, and there may be different regulations regarding the practice or the financial side of the medicine that you're doing, but the science and the medicine itself doesn't change just based on where you're standing. But for you as an attorney, it is actually a completely different legal landscape. I'm, I'm sure that in broad strokes, things are about the same. But because we're from Florida, you went to law school in Florida, and, and as I know, you started your practice as an attorney in Florida, you had maintained your bar certification here, which I'm sure played a role in selecting Florida as a state to move to. But maybe talk a little bit about how different is it really, the, the, you know, working in one state versus another as an attorney and what that's like to, you know, switch your headspace, switch your perspective to uproot your career where you've been working in New York, which I'm sure has a dramatically different legal structure and framework, both in the day-to-day -day and the legal landscape, and then come to Florida and start that career anew. Because as I said, most of our listeners are in medicine or science, and as I said, the medicine's the medicine, but for you, it, it really is a different job you're doing, not just a different place. That's right. Um, I think you're right. Generally speaking, the law is the law in broad strokes, but there are, of course, um, state-specific things that are different. The court systems are different uh, for me, and the practice um, and the day-to-day -day can be much different. I think me, though, um, more than sort of the legal industry, I think it's probably um, and something that I'm still um, working on and learning is moving from um, location like that to a new location. So not even specific to my my field. It's just more, you know, a place like New York and a, a huge metropolitan area. Um, fast, day by day is much different, much more people, different types of work as opposed to now being back in Florida. Things aren't necessarily slower, but it's work is done differently. It can sometimes it can be viewed more as a nine to five. There's a lot more free time. The overall work still has to get done and it's still there, but it's definitely a lifestyle. Lifestyle is much different and adapting to that is, you know, something that takes time and it takes planning. Luckily, this is where I'm from and I've, you know, lived here the majority of my life. So it was easy for me kind of to jump right back into it. 
But, you know, for anyone moving from one place to a dramatically different place, um, lifestyle is uh, definitely something to consider and something that you should consider when you're making that decision to jump careers or geographies. Yeah, so remind me, how many years were you in New York? I was in New York for a little over eight years. Okay, so let's, let's imagine that the time comes that you and your wife are ready to leave New York and you're looking for somewhere else to live. Let's imagine that you didn't have experience in Florida, you weren't previously barred here, you're looking for somewhere new entirely. How feasible is it for an attorney who's about 10 years in practice to go to an entirely new state where you're not previously barred, you haven't looked, you know, you haven't lived and worked in their legal system before? Is that something people do once they're that far down the road within law, or is it kind of unheard of? What, what's the Extraordinarily cutoff? Extraordinarily rare. Really? Um, for a couple reasons. One that you touched on, which would be licensure, um, ne- needing to be barred in different states. Um, so you're going to have to take the test before you can practice in that state and get approved through that process. And it's also going to be finding a job, finding clients, um, finding connections. Um, in a in an industry like this one, it can be extraordinarily difficult, which mm. is why it, it is very rare to do, uh, to, to make a jump like that. That's really interesting. You know, within academic medicine, but particularly within academic neurosurgery, when people go into academics, there's all these old sayings about how the first job you take with an academic neurosurgery is rarely ever your last. And people tend to bounce around between a few different institutions, a few different spots, just based on what's available and what's open in a given year when you graduate until they finally kind of settle down where they are. And so when you're getting out of law school and you can speak from your own experience, you can speak from your friends or colleagues that you knew at the time and have known now, how much thought and planning goes into the state where you go to law school, the state where you try to get your first jobs coming out? Because from what you're saying, it sounds like these early years of your career really cement where you can work and therefore where you can live for the rest of your adult life, at least before you retire. Sure. And I can tell you from my experience with others, um, where you go to school, at least in my industry, is not that big of a deal. It's not that impactful. You can go to school anywhere. The real decision is where you're going to uh, take the bar exam and try to get licensed first. And so some areas like in the Northeast, we'll do multiple states' bars um, back-to-back on successive days. So New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, the tri-state area kind of does it that way to give people more flexibility. Um, but for the most part, um, I, I think the decision of where you're going to take you know, the bar exam it is the one that you know, people really spend the majority of the amount of time um, considering and and deciding. Interesting. So now let's kind of circle back because you rightly uh, mentioned your wife Colby right out of the gate and this was obviously not a move that you made alone. This is a move you made together and, and as I said you're both professionals. You both have careers and so leaving a city like New York to find another place to live, another place to work isn't just a question of where can you find a firm? Where can you find connections and, and build your practice in this new location? It's where is there a university for her to continue her career within academia? So maybe you can 
start as broad as you want and just talk about what's it like zeroing in on the right place and the right location professionally for you, but at the same time you have to kind of you've got a Venn diagram, right? Where you both have needs that you, and you need to find the overlapping spot. Sure. Um, it's definitely something that we had to consider and it's definitely difficult. Um, when you have two people, um, two professionals that need to, you know, continue their career at the same place and both of them looking for new things at the same time. So when we sat down and decided you know, we had decided on Florida, but when we were thinking about the geography, it definitely had to be, you know, a place for me where, you know, I could continue to practice at the high level and doing the type of work that I do. But the place also had to have a strong university presence um, with options so that my wife could continue uh, to teach criminology. So, you know, right out of the gate, that kind of limited, um, where in Florida we wanted to to be to really about three places. And then, you know, you start thinking about the intangibles, uh, whether you're close to family, um, friends in the area, quality of life, things like that. Yeah, I'm curious because, you know, you, you're, you play things close to the chest. And I remember when you made the decision to move, I think everyone in our family learned that you were even considering it once you had a job and were ready and had a move date, you just all at once, hey, guess what's happening? This is happening. That was intentional. Yeah. I, I didn't want to keep talking about it for months until it had happened. Right. So, so exactly that's what, that's what I want to drill into here because I don't think I've ever thought about this until right now in this conversation. How long was this in the planning stage? Like I'm, I'm sure the idea germinated. You and Colby talked about it, but between the moment where you said to each other, okay, we're actually gonna do this, and the day that you finally moved, what was that incubation period? It's probably, serious talks were probably about six months or so, because I remember interviewing over the summer, uh, remotely, of course, um, but then didn't get the offer at the firm that I'm with now until around Thanksgiving and then closing it later, uh, later in the year. So it was probably about six months, um, seemed like much longer because we were in the midst of the pandemic and yeah. at home a lot with not a lot to do, everything being locked down. So. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because, you know, I, I'm speaking from by definition ignorance here. I went to college, I went to medical school, I matched into a residency. So I'm not yet in a stage of life or career where I've made a lateral move or I've decided to change where I'm living and working. It's, it's all been this academic pipeline. It's risky. And it, yeah, and training pipeline. So, but six months seems really fast to me. I'm sure, as you said, it felt long, but to decide we're going to live in a different state, in a different city, we both have to find employment. Six months seems like a really quick turnaround. I, if you have friends who have changed places like that or talking to people who advised you at the time, did that seem like it took a long time or did, did it seem fast to you? It, it was 100 miles an hour. And yeah. I can tell you what was even faster than the six months was when we flew down here for the Thanksgiving holiday and I had actually met with the firm that I was with, got the offer that day. Mm. And so then I meet my wife for dinner 
And I said, well, I just got the offer. And we both looked at each other and said, wow, we're really doing this and we really need to do it now yeah. uh, because I was starting January 1. <laughs> and so it wasn't six months. It was more like six weeks to move out of New York City, which that in and of itself is a monster, um, but then completely uprooting my wife then having to look for and find a new job. It was extraordinarily fast. Wow. So as you said, everything moving 100 miles an hour, probably a blur and, you know, flying from the seat of your pants, right? Each step of the way, just, I, I'm sure a lot of knee-jerk reactions, a lot of shooting from the hip. So looking back on it now that you've had some time to settle in, settle into the job, settle into where you're living, um, for anyone listening who's contemplating a major move, either career-wise, city-wise, what do you wish you knew when you started out this process since it, it seems like you didn't have a lot of time to research and think and you kind of had to just take things as they came? Are, are there any things that you realized in retrospect you could have told yourself when you started? I wish I would have known the real estate market. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> right. Um, because that that is a very weird and very challenging right now. Um, but in all seriousness, no, I, I mean, I despite things moving so quickly, um, I, I think that, you know, kind of like I said in the beginning, we had very good planning and both of us were very lucky because then shortly after we, we came to Florida, um, my wife also got a new job at uh, University of South Florida. So, you know, you do as best as you can, you know, best laid plans, and you try to plan for all the contingencies and things like that. But, you know, sometimes what's supposed to happen is going to happen, and, you know, you just get lucky. Yeah, that is really interesting that, you know, you, you mentioned the real estate market, and I, I think it's I think it's very American. I think it's very common in the neurosurgical mindset. It's very common in the mindset of any dedicated, professionally minded person that you you know you think about. I'm going to go live in a new place. I need to get a job, and then everything else is extraneous, right? It's like as long as I yes. have my job, I know where the job is. Ah, I'll find somewhere to sleep. I'll find some food. Who cares about the rest of it, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, that that's really interesting to me, and you know that's the discipline at the end of the day. Well, speak of the devil and she will appear, um, through the door just came the aforementioned Colby Valentine, my brother's wife. Uh, good timing, because actually we, we've been talking about your move from New York down to Tampa, and we've been hearing Michael's side of things about finding a new firm to work with, finding new professional connections, and we talked about how obviously this move wasn't just his, but it was a joint venture with the two of you, and you have your own career to consider, uh, he talked about how that narrowed the, the field of possible cities. And we just mentioned that you started a new job at the University of South Florida. Congratulations, by the way. Thank um, you. But maybe why don't you say hi to our listeners and talk a bit about what this experience was like on your end? Because most of our listeners, as I said, they're within neurosurgery, they're physicians. Many of us are still within the academic structure. And so your process is not just finding a new firm, not just finding a place of employment, but you're moving within academia, which I think much like the field of law, I would imagine is a handshake industry and who you know determines who you can know. But I think we're all aware it's a different culture. It's a different flavor of that process. So what's it like changing academic institutions um, from some, you know, somewhere as disparate as New York City down to Tampa, Florida? Well, thank you, John Paul, for allowing me to speak with your listeners today. 
it was, you know, a long conversation about moving and about our employment. And we were on the same page that we wanted to make a change. And so in academia, we have a hiring cycle where most of it occurs in the fall. Mm. So I started looking for opportunities and I was very lucky that the university I was with allowed me to work remotely. So when Michael was offered the job in November, I was able to continue my job remotely for the spring. There were some other jobs that came up. I interviewed. I really didn't see a good fit. So I thought I would work remotely for the next year. And I was very lucky, as Michael has said, some of this is luck. And a job popped up as a visiting professor at the University of South Florida. I interviewed. I got the position. And then this year, another position opened up for a full-time faculty member. And I was lucky enough to also receive that. That's really interesting to imagine a hiring cycle. So, you know, he, he gets a job with his firm. You have some work to hold you over at New York remotely. But... Even if there's a university that wants you, your dream job, there's X number of months until they, they can take you on. And I imagine that just uh, matches along with the semester with students because you, you have to do some teaching work in addition to your research. Correct. Even more interesting was the reverse happened when we had both moved to New York together. Colby had a job first and I did not. And now the reverse had happened. When we moved back to Florida, I had it, and then she did not. And the hiring cycle with her um, was definitely something that had to go into our consideration and definitely something that affected both of us. Just to add another variable to this already complex process. Exactly. Uh, that's really interesting. Well, so, so Colby, you moved down and... You know, again, my experience is within neurosurgery, and oftentimes you, you get offered a job and depending on how far down the road you are in our field, what fellowships you've done, what, what you try to brand yourself as, as a surgeon, they may say, join our, uh, join our group here at this university, join our group in this practice. We, the, the major breakdowns we do are clinical time and academic research time. And you, you can have protected numbers of hours per week where if you want to do some lab work or you need to do educational teaching work versus just running a clinic and operating and generating revenue for, for your group. And people will negotiate their, their contracts based on how those different protected sets of times break down. But then there's also needs within a group. Oh, we need a tumor surgeon, right? We need someone who does deformity spine versus minimally invasive spine in our group to round out the practice. You, as an established academician, you have your fields of interest, you have your areas of previous research, but now you just need a job, right? So when you're joining a department of criminology at a new institution, how much negotiation is there, I guess, A, between how much teaching versus research time you'll have? I'm sure that's a, that's a major factor when they have students taking courses. But then also, B, within that research academic time, are you free to do what you want? Or, oh, our department already has someone that looks at the state of X in prison, so we need you looking at something. Is there any kind of direction towards your actual research? Well, it's a little complicated because the previous institution I was at, um, I had received tenure, I had received prom promotion, and so when now looking at a new position, I had to be a little bit flexible. Right. I couldn't just come in 
as an associate professor if they didn't have that position available. Uh, so again, I took the visiting professor and now I'm actually in a position where I am now an assistant professor of instruction. So I'm not on a tenure track line, but I do have the possibility of applying for a tenure track line in the future. But I'm very lucky at the University of South Florida where they are an R1 institution where I'm able to do research that I can do that still. I can collaborate with my colleagues. And again, I know we've talked a lot about luck, but the University of South Florida just opened a trafficking in persons research lab and my research for the past three years in New York has been on human trafficking. So I really fit in well in this new lab that they had just opened. Mm. Okay. Well, we, we, you know, we need to respect your time and our listeners' time, but I think as we're wrapping up this conversation, I would say if we tried to list out advice for anyone considering a move like this, items one through ten would be be lucky, right? <laughs> and planning. Uh, planning and luck. But are, are there any specific uh, bits of advice or wisdom from your experience that you could give to anyone considering a mid-career move? from either the practicing law or the academic standpoint, anything you wish you knew when you started? I think you have to be flexible. I think you have to be prepared for the unexpected. But also, if you are moving with someone else, for both of you to be on the same page. Hmm. I would agree with that. And I would also add in um, just more on the preparation side because I'm more methodical. Um, I would say visit where you want to live as much as you can, um, as many times as you can, figure out the area where you want to live, figure out the area where you want to work, and, you know, what your lifestyle is going to be like, because life isn't all work, you know, you've got to live there too, you've got to wake up and go to sleep there and make sure that um, you're, you're really in it 100% and that you'll be happy because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Very sound advice. I, I imagine if you know, you're know you interviewing with a firm and they show you around the town and wine and dine you, they're going to show you all the best aspects of a place. Then you live there through all seasons, all times of day, times of year, and you you know you don't want to find yourself bamboozled at the 11th hour, right? Exactly. If, if, you're, if you have the, the time and the resources to be able to um, to do your research and to do your research in person, then that's, that's exactly what I would suggest that you do. Beautiful. Well, uh, Mike, great to have you on the show again. And Colby, welcome for your first time. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.